All right, tonight, page 29 in our Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted series. We've been giving these handouts to you each week, and we'll put them together in a full notebook if anybody cares to have the, the full notebook when we're all done. But we're closing in on the end of our semester together. And I say at the top of page 29 in the final sessions, we're going to look at how to evangelize particular groups of people. Roman Catholic friends, Jewish friends, Islamic, and then just family and friends. Tonight, we're going to focus on our Roman Catholic friends. And you see on page 29, I say that Roman Catholics constitute 17% of the world's population. In 2000, there was an estimated, it was estimated that there were 1.8 billion professing Christians And over a billion of those were Roman Catholic. Half of those are in North and South America, followed by Europe, then Africa, then Asia. Largest population live in Latin America. Brazil is the world's most populous Roman Catholic country. Baptism rates remain high in countries of Roman Catholic heritage, but practice rates vary. So baptism rates, that means that people still, even if they don't practice, people still uh, have a family heritage in the church and they identify themselves with the church. And that's one reason that infant baptism is, is so powerful because it has that family lineage to it. And so people feel obligated, uh, privileged as well to continue the family continue the family line even if they themselves don't don't necessarily practice and that's a hard that's a hard thing to break and we encounter that at a church like ours where we believe that the bible teaches that baptism is not something that babies are to participate in uh it's believers baptism so someone is baptized after they personally believe And the mode of baptism is immersion to symbolize death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so with that, we get uh, folks who come, maybe some of you fit into that category, uh, where they were baptized as an an infant, but in order to join the church, then have to reckon with the idea of being baptized the way the New Testament says. And that's hard for a lot of people to do. I have lots of discussions with, uh, with people about that. Uh, and so that's what that sentence means, that people still get baptized even if they don't actually practice Roman, Roman Catholicism. It's not just true of Roman Catholicism. It's true of other denominations that practice infant baptism. You get people who get baptized into the church um, and uh, want their kids baptized into the church even if they themselves don't, uh, don't practice. The next paragraph, it may not be obvious why, though, we would consider giving the gospel to Roman Catholic friends since they believe many of the same things that we do. For example, the Bible is God's word, that Jesus is, in fact, God, that he was born of a virgin, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the grave. There's a very long list of very important doctrines, teachings that Roman Catholicism teaches that uh, are correct. And in addition to that, Many of the same words that we use are used uh, in Roman Catholicism. Grace, faith, atonement, justification, and more. Now, therefore, no doubt many people have come to a saving faith in Christ through teaching they heard at Roman Catholic churches. So 
you know, if you're if you hear about Jesus dying on the cross and you believe you're a sinner and you see your need for that and you you receive that, then it's possible that people are then born again, that they have a relationship with God as a result of hearing those those truths. However, I say in that last line, that would be in spite of what the church actually teaches, not because of it. So as we're going to see, the church is not telling you that you need to receive Christ as your Savior personally. They actually do use the language of receiving Christ, but receiving Christ is done through the Eucharist, through the celebration of the uh, of the Mass. Uh, so we'll see that in a, in a bit. Roman Catholicism teaches that salvation is through Christ, but not solely through faith in Christ alone. So it's through Christ, but it's and it's believing in Christ. But that's not the sole means by which someone uh, is related to God. Rather, it's that plus. It is that plus we're going to see some of the works that have to be done in order for one to have and maintain a relationship with God. While Roman Catholics and Protestants sometimes sound the same, as you dig deeper, you see different understandings of some basic questions. Some of the biggest differences are not obvious. There are many hot topics that people are excited to debate about, like saints, indulgences, purgatory, the Pope. I'm actually going to mention those in the pages that follow a little bit further on in our lesson. But those are not the heart of the gospel. It's precisely when we get to the heart of the gospel, some of the major differences really emerge between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity. So we're going to, at the bottom of page 29, begin to look at really the two major gospel issues that separate uh, Roman Catholicism from biblical Christianity. Now, I've said biblical Christianity on that page, and I've also used the word Protestant. So Roman Catholic, as contrasted with biblical Christianity, or Roman Catholic, sometimes on that page, is contrasted with Protestant. Uh, Many of you know that in church history, uh, 500 years ago, uh, this last year, 2017, October of 2017, was the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So that's what we're referring to when we talk about Protestants. We're talking about those of us whose lineage is through the uh, stream of those who were part of the protest to reform the church. So Protestant, the protest, Reformation, reform. And as I say, that happened 500 years ago, and that gave rise then to some of the denominations you know today, and we come out of that, we come out of that stream. So not all Protestants uh, are themselves biblical Christians, uh, so they're not synonyms, but biblical Christianity is a subset of Protestants, so that's why they're both being used there. All right, so what are these major issues that separate Roman Catholicism from biblical Christianity? So that you, understanding that, can then hopefully help a Roman Catholic friend to, to see that and then show them uh, the truth about Christ and our relationship with God through him. Well, the first one and foundational one is what I have at the bottom of page 29. On what authority? So the, uh, the, the first and foremost issue that separates Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity is the Bible and the place of the Bible in authority in terms of what 
we believe. Now, I said earlier that Roman Catholics believe the Bible is God's word. But that's true, but you're going to see in the pages that follow that they believe more than that. They don't just believe that the Bible is God's word. They believe other things are God's word as well. So it's not just the Bible. So the difference then is the sole authority and supreme authority of the Bible to tell us what it is we're supposed to believe versus the authority of the Bible and some other stuff. And we'll see what that other stuff is in a, in a bit. And if you don't get the authority question right, then it follows that you're going to diverge in terms of what you do. Because now you've got different voices uh, of authority. And in the case of Roman Catholicism, different voices of equal authority with the Bible that are then dictating what you're, what you're to do. And we'll see what some of those are. So this question of what's the authority? Where do you get truth? How do you know what it is you're supposed to do? How do you know what it is that's required in order to have a relationship with God? That's foundational. Bottom of page 29. The teachings of the Roman Catholic Church flow logically from the way they view authority. The Bible alone leads to Christ alone. But the Bible plus some other means of revelation leads to Christ plus some other means of salvation. And in fact, that's what ends up happening in in Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the Bible has authority, but it's not sufficient and can only be rightly interpreted by the clergy. The Roman Catholic Church puts itself over God's word and believes that the church created, in fact, God's word. That is, the church determined what is canonical rather than that God's word creates his church. All right, what is that? What does that mean? So if you talk to a knowledgeable Roman Catholic and you say, hey, look, the authority is the Bible. And they say, well, we believe in the authority of the Bible, and they do. But we also believe in the authority of the church. And they will say, and as a matter of fact, it was the church that gave us the Bible. So it's not the Bible that gives us the church. It's the other way around. In Roman Catholicism. And they will make the claim that it is the Roman Catholic Church that actually determined the composition of the Bible. What books are to be included in, in the Bible? And that's what that word canonical means. So what books meet the standard? That's what canon means, standard. What books meet the standard such that they are to be included in, in Holy Scripture? And they will point to, they will point to councils in the fourth century, for example, um, and fourth and fifth century where councils met and gave lists of books that are, that are in the Bible. And look at that and say, see, that's when those books became part of the Word of God. And that happened because of the action of the church. Now that's wrong. And just briefly, Quickly, why is it wrong? Uh, it's wrong because uh, when those councils met, they were not meeting to define which books to, to give authority to books of the Bible. But rather, it was to, in contradiction to heretics who were writing their own books, to say these are the books that are God's word. So those actions by the councils didn't give authority to those books. 
It simply recognized the authority that they already had. And they met because there were people who were trying to add additional additional books. So it wasn't the church that gave authority to uh, the, the books of the Bible. They had authority long before the Roman Catholic Church existed. The books of the Bible were all completed in the first century, as most of you know. By the end of the first century, we had all 66 books of the Bible. And all of them had full authority the moment they were they were written. And God's people recognized that authority. Even recognized that authority as the books were being written. Did you know that? So just real quick, let me remind you. You know, your Bible is divided into these two parts. Old Testament, New Testament. 66 books total. 39 and 27. The 39 books of your Old Testament are pretty easy to, to deal with. Because... After those are completed and they've been around for literally centuries, you have a an authority come along in the Lord Jesus. God himself comes as man and makes pronouncements about God's word. And in his teaching regularly says things like, it is written, to refer to God's authoritative word. And he would then quote the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. At the time Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, the only Bible you had were those 39 books. But Jesus would quote from them. He didn't quote from all of them, but he would quote from many of them, thus signifying that the Bible that he had, that had been around at that point for centuries, was God's word. But I've told you this before, but I'll tell it to you quickly again. He even went further than that. He gave the parameters of the 39 books of the Bible. Uh, at the time he was doing his teaching 2,000 years ago. He did that in a couple of places. Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and following. Luke 24, 44 and following. And Jesus uh, is at the end of his earthly ministry. He's going to re- ascend back to the Father. He's completed his teaching, his death on the cross. He's risen from the, the grave. He's giving final instructions to his first followers. And he says to them, that everything that is written about me in three places must be fulfilled. And he gives the three places. Everything that is written about me in, and then he says the law, the prophets, and the writings. And then in another place he says the law, the prophets, and the psalms. And I'll tell you why it says psalms versus writings in a minute. So he's got these three sections. Well, what are those? Well, the law. The Torah, the Hebrew word for the, for the law, uh, the first five books of your Old Testament. But then he's got the he's got the writings, or excuse me, the the prophets, and that's the what are called the major prophets and the minor prophets, and that included the so-called historical books of like First Samuel, Second Samuel, and so on. And then you have the the writings, and those are what we sometimes call the poetic books or the wisdom books of Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and, and Job. And they fit into these three categories, the law, the prophets, and the, the writings. Now, guess how many books were part of those three categories? 39. The 39 that you have in your, your Old Testament. That's what Jesus had. That's what he recognized. But he even got more specific when in Luke chapter 11 and verse 51, Luke 11, 51. Luke 11, 51, Jesus is in 
another one of his arguments with the religious leaders at the time, and he is castigating them, and he says, you are just like your forefathers, and you are guilty of the blood of all of the prophets who have been slain. And he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That's Luke 11.51. Blood of Abel, blood of Zechariah. So where's the blood of Abel? Where's the murder of Abel? First book of your Bible, first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, right? Then Jesus refers to the, the murder of someone else, Zechariah. Not the Zechariah. There's a prophet named Zechariah. This is a different Zechariah, as an aside. But there's a murder of a guy named Zechariah. And that occurs in the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Now that might mess you up because if you know your Old Testament arrangement a little bit, you know it starts with Genesis. But it doesn't end with Second Chronicles. It ends with Malachi. So what's Jesus saying? Why did he give you an example from Genesis and Second Chronicles? Here's why. Because even though the Jewish arrangement, the, the Jewish uh, canon of the Old Testament has the same number of books as ours, 39, they're ordered differently. They start with Genesis, but it actually ends with, instead of Malachi, it ends with Second Chronicles. So when Jesus said, you're guilty of the blood of all of the prophets that have been slain from Abel to Zechariah, he was saying from beginning to end. It would, like, it would be like us saying, I believe the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. From beginning to, to end. So the Old Testament, and knowing that we have the right books of the Old Testament is pretty easy because we have the authority, namely Jesus, speaking to that. But then you've got the New Testament books. And when Jesus did his teaching, Jesus pre-authenticated, it's a fancy term, but he pre-authenticated, he authenticated pre before they were written. The writings of the apostles. Now, how did he do that? Well, the night before Jesus was crucified, you can read about the events of that night in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in particular, John chapters 13 uh, through 17. John 13 through 17, those five chapters are all about one night. All the events you read about there are all about the, all took place on the night before Jesus died. And in John chapter 13, it starts with them being in the upper room, and they have the Last Supper, and there's Jesus washing the apostles' feet. You all remember that. And then Judas goes out to do his deed of betrayal, and Jesus teaches the eleven. And he says to the eleven in John chapter 14 and verse 26, John chapter 14 and verse 26, he says that I'm going to send you another counselor, another teacher, the Holy Spirit. After I leave, because now the end is coming, he's going to die the next day. He's preparing them for that. And he says to them that the, the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. Guide you into all truth. Now, sometimes people, we read that. And we take that to mean, if I'm a Christian, therefore I have the Holy Spirit, which is true. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God guides you into all truth. That statement Jesus made was not one made directly to you and me. 
He's guiding the apostles into all truth. That's who he's talking to. And he says in John chapter 16 and verse 13, he says that he, the Holy Spirit, is, I'm quoting, going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've commanded you. Again, he's talking to the apostles. Now, why? Why is why are the apostles going to need the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth and to bring to their remembrance everything that Jesus has said? Because they're going to write it down. They're going to write books. This is Jesus pre-authenticating what they're going to write later. So the books of your New Testament were written later. They were written after the events that they described. But the apostles had perfect recall. They had perfect recall because Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit guides them into all truth and bring, brings to their remembrance everything that Jesus said. You know that that doesn't apply to you directly because you forget stuff and I forget stuff. But those guys got it right. And in addition to that, so you've got the writings of the apostles are pre-authenticated. And then you've got this apostle that kind of comes out of nowhere. I mean, you've got the original 11. And you have the 12. Judas is not was didn't belong to Jesus. He betrays him. He goes and commits suicide. They replace him with one named Matthias in Acts chapter 1. But then, and they are just a select group of people. It's a, it's a, it's a select and privileged and commissioned group of 12 people. You can't be an apostle. There, there can't be any more apostles. Because there aren't any people around that can meet the qualifications to be an apostle, which included seeing the risen Christ. When they replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1 with Matthias, you can read this in Acts chapter 1, they say we need to choose someone to take his place, and they specifically say what the qualifications are, and they include one who is a witness with us of his resurrection. Further, later when the apostle Paul is defending the fact that he is an apostle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, among other things, Paul says, have I not seen the risen Lord? So one of the qualifications is you, you saw the risen Christ. Nobody can do that today. There are no more apostles. But there is this guy that became an apostle later. You got the original group. They were just known as the Twelve. After Judas defected, they were known as the Eleven. <laughs> so whenever you're just known as a number, you know you're in a select group. The Twelve. The Eleven. But Paul comes along, and many of you know the story of Paul in Acts chapter 9. He's miraculously, spectacularly converted on the road to Damascus. And the Lord says, you're going to be my special emissary to the Gentiles. And he becomes the apostle Paul. But he says of himself, Paul does of his own testimony, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says to himself that I became an apostle one born out of due season, he says. One abnormally born. Now, what's he mean by that? He means, I wasn't called in as an apostle the same at the same time the rest of them were. 
I was called as an apostle in this special way. And he saw the Lord and he saw the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And he had this spectacular conversion. But he became the apostle Paul, right? And he too then is able to have apostolic authority to write these books. And he wrote 13 of the 27 books in your New Testament. Now, as he's writing those books, how do people know whether they have authority or not? Well, he's an apostle. He meets the qualifications of an apostle. He has apostolic authority. And in the first century, during the lifetime of Paul, while he's still alive, the church is recognizing the authority of the letters that Paul is writing. Did you know that? Long before there was ever any council that met hundreds of years later. Second Peter chapter three, 2 Peter chapter three, verses 15 and 16. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. I turn my head a particular way and it goes off. Or is that you hitting the, turn the volume off? If I, if I say something they don't like, those guys just sometimes, you know, hit the, hit the volume. So 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And it's Peter now writing. One of the apostles, Peter. Peter wrote two of the books in your New Testament, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. In Peter, the apostle Peter's second letter, he talks about Paul. And he talks about him in that passage, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. He says that our dear brother Paul, that's what he says, our dear brother Paul, writes the same way in all of his letters. He says hard things. That's what Peter says. Paul says hard things. That ignorant, Peter says, ignorant and unstable people distort. So Paul writes the same way in all of his letters, saying in them some hard things that ignorant and unstable people distort. And then Peter says this, as they do the other scriptures. Now, what's important about that? Peter's equating the letters of Paul with the scriptures. Paul writes the same way in all of his letters. In them, he says hard things that ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. So here's Peter. Paul's letters are coming hot off the press. And here's Peter recognizing them as having the full authority of Holy Scripture. That word scripture is a technical term for the Holy writings, the the authorized writings of of God. You guys remember 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. So that word scripture is applied to Paul's letters by Peter at the time they're being written. So this idea that you needed a church council in the 300s or the 400s or the 500s to tell you what books were in the Bible does not comport with the Bible itself. But that's what you'll be told. That the church gave us the Bible rather than the Bible instructing us about what the church is. 
All right, back to page 30. That second paragraph, in other words, then, Roman Catholics have an unbiblical doctrine of the word. They will challenge Protestants with the question, how do you know you are reading your Bible correctly? People interpret the Bible differently. How do you know your way is is right? The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome. That's according to the Council of Trent, a Roman Catholic council that met in the 16th century right after the Protestant Reformation had started to refute the Protestant Reformation, and that is among the pronouncements they made. The only people who can interpret the Bible rightly are the authorities of the church. So that's what your Roman Catholic friend will say. Well, we're not able to do that. We're not able to interpret the Bible. You know, so what would you, what would you say to that? Well, do you, uh, do you guys remember some people in the Bible who interpreted the Bible, read the Bible, and made judgments about whether or not what they were being taught was, was true? In Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, the, the Bible says there, the Bereans, the Bereans were more noble. Because they consulted the scriptures. They studied the scriptures, it says, to see if these things are so. (laughs) To see if these things are true. To see if they're right. And here's the kicker. Guess what they were checking up on to see if they were right? It was the teachings of Paul. They're checking up on Paul. They're comparing what Paul is saying to the Bible that they had, namely... At that time, the Old Testament. At this point, Paul hasn't written a letter yet. He's just, he's out preaching. He's establishing churches. And the first people who are hearing him are taking the Bible they have and they're comparing the claims he's making about Jesus being the Messiah and they're checking to see if this is true or not. These were common folk doing this. So the idea that you've got to have some magisterium to do that is contrary to what you what you find in the Bible. But that's what Roman Catholicism teaches. And as a result of that, uh, historically, people who wanted to translate the Bible into the language of common people, you know what happened to those people? Those people were martyred. William Tyndale sought to do that. The, The Bible was kept from the average person in a language the average person didn't speak, in Latin, and that went on for centuries. Even the services were done, and in some places, even in the United States, are still done in Latin. And for the churches that have changed it from Latin to English, that's happened within the lifetime of some of us here. That only happened with a pronouncement from the Vatican II Council in the, in the 60s. Prior to that, it was all, all that. So literally, people would go to church and they didn't understand what was being said. But in Roman Catholicism, they don't have to. Because it's not about your personal relationship with God. It's about you being in relationship with the church. 
The church is the authority. Middle of page 30. Over time, Roman Catholicism has kept a record of their interpretations of Scripture, compiled them together, and made them into a separate and equally authoritative source of doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church believes that revelation is not found in Scripture alone, but also in, quote, the unwritten traditions which have been received by the apostles. Tradition, capital T, is said to be the body of unwritten knowledge given by Christ to the apostles and handed down to and through the bishops. One must refer to tradition to have an authentic interpretation of the Bible. The church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from Holy Scripture alone. Both tradition and Scripture must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Tradition, Scripture, and the magisterium, that is the teaching body of the church, are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. They all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. All right, you all see what's happening? You got the Bible. The Bible is an authority, but it's one of three equal authorities. Bible, tradition, magisterium. So you've gotten this unwritten, not scripture. Scripture is by definition script, writing. You've got this unwritten tradition that is equal in authority to the scriptures. And in addition to that, you have the teaching function of the church. And that would be the pronouncements of the popes and the councils convened by the popes. You got all three of those. So as you talk to your Roman Catholic friend, you want to make sure that they understand where's the authority. And one way to do that is the bottom of page 30. Ask this. What is the Immaculate Conception? This is, as I, over decades, have talked to Roman Catholic friends, that's the question I use. You know, sometimes they'll say, so what's the difference between, you know, I'm I'm Catholic, so what's the difference between you and, and us? And I say, I can give you the difference by exploring this question. What is the Immaculate Conception? And I'll say, you guys believe in the Immaculate Conception? And they go, yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, I've only had one Roman Catholic in all of my life, and I can't give you the exact number, but it's over 100, <laughs> that I've asked this question. I've had one answer this correctly, one. What is the Immaculate Conception? And they go, yeah, yeah, the Immaculate Conception. That is the miraculous conception of Jesus in Mary. And I, I don't have a buzzer that goes, uh, but I just kind of gently say, um, well, Jesus was miraculously conceived in Mary. The Bible teaches that. We believe that and you believe that. So we're good so far. Roman Catholicism teaches the virgin conception of Jesus, and we believe the convergent virgin conception of Jesus because the Bible teaches that. But the Immaculate Conception is something in addition to that. I go, as a matter of fact, did you know, dear Roman Catholic friend, that there is a holy day of obligation 
There's a handful of these in Roman Catholicism, a holy day of obligation. So these are holy days that you're obligated to observe. And one of those holy days of obligation, I'm quite certain it's in August every year. Okay. December 8th? Okay. December 8th says. So, but it's not December. It's not, it's not in April. Okay. It's not in April though, which would be if it's the, if it's the conception of Jesus, if Jesus is born on December 25th, then Immaculate Conception Day would be nine months before that, right? And the, no, I know I'm going to get to that. But since, um, Sharon just blew my punchline here. But thankfully, nobody heard her. (laughs) No. So Sharon is saying that the actual day, the holy day of obligation for the Immaculate Conception is December 8th. Okay. What I'm saying is that the Immaculate Conception is something different than the conception of Jesus. Because the conception of Jesus would have taken nine months before his birth, right? And then when you say this, to a Roman Catholic, almost all of them, I go, so those are not the same thing. They're two different things. And then they go, you know, you know you're right. Yeah, there is. You're right. We do have this Immaculate Conception Day thing on December 8th. And so then the question is, well, whose conception are we talking about now? And immaculate, the Immaculate Conception is the conception of Mary... In her mother. That's what the immaculate conception is. So you've got the virgin conception of Jesus that the Bible teaches and that we believe and that they believe. But in addition, they say, you've got the immaculate, miraculous conception of Mary in her mother. Now, the miraculous conception of Mary. So... Where do you get that? Where does that come from? And if you look at your Bible, and if you look at a Roman Catholic Bible, and that's important to tell your Roman Catholic friend, because they're going to be suspicious of you as a Protestant. Well, you guys got some squirrely Bible, (laughs) okay? No, no, we don't. There are, in the Roman Catholic Bible, there are seven additional books in the Roman Catholic Bible. Instead of 66, they have 73. They have seven books that were written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament in between. Now, I've already told you what Jesus said about the parameters of the Old Testament, and it didn't include those extra seven books. So they're not part of the Bible, and they never were. But Roman Catholicism, in fact, that same Council of Trent 500 years ago, pronounced them to be part of But that aside, those seven books have nothing to do with this. Zero. Nada. There's nothing in those seven books about Mary. There's nothing in those seven books about Mary's mother. There's nothing in the Roman Catholic Bible about the Immaculate Conception. There's nothing in in the Bible about the Immaculate Conception. Nothing. So who pronounced that? Where did that come from? Here's the answer. 1854. 1854. 
The Immaculate Conception was a pronouncement of the Pope in the year 1854. And it was declared by the Pope to be a dogma. That's the word that you use, dogma. The word dogma is a, an authoritative teaching that must be believed. The Immaculate Conception is an authoritative teaching that must be believed by anyone who's going to be in right relationship with the church and thus in right relationship with God. If you're a Roman Catholic, you must believe in the Immaculate Conception. And where did it come from? From the teaching office of the magisterium of the church. Not from the Bible. Now, that's the, that's the Immaculate Conception. Now, just turn a few pages, several pages. Let's just skip ahead here to page 32. Go to page 32. So while we're on Mary and the Immaculate Conception, down at the bottom of page 32, The Roman Catholic Church teaches we have to earn God's favor. Yet most of us aren't worthy of God. So we need holier people to intercede between us and God. This is where Mary and the saints come in. In Roman Catholicism, saints are extra super holy people. (laughs) I mean, they really are. They are super Christians. Now, in the Bible, the word saint just refers to a Christian. So when Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle to the saints in the church in Corinth. And he's addressing all of the, all of the Christians there. So saint is a synonym for Christian, but in Roman Catholicism it is saint so-and-so and saint so-and-so, right? And these are people have to, who have to be canonized as saints, Remember, canon means meet the standard, and so the church determines who meets the standard to be called a saint, and they've got a whole process of veneration and beatification and two verified miracles in their lives. I mean, it's a whole bunch of stuff to make the hall of fame of saints. Top of page 33. So they're taught that we should seek to have saints intercede for us in heaven to help us to earn God's favor. Preeminently, this means Mary, the highest of all saints. She has led, this has led to a large emphasis in Catholicism on Mary, coupled with a a lot of extra biblical and unbiblical teaching about her. So here are some of the things Roman Catholicism teaches about Mary. Immaculate Conception, 1854. But in addition, Mary is the mediatrix. What is that? In agreeing to give birth to Christ, the Roman Catholic Church says that Mary cooperated with Christ in redemption, and so she is co-redemptrix with Christ, co-redeemer. Mary will put in a good word for me with Jesus, and since he is a good son, he will do whatever she asks. And they use as an example of this the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, where she says to Jesus, hey, they don't have any more to drink. And Jesus goes and turns the water into wine. And so this shows the authority that Mary has, they say, with Jesus. As no one goes to the Father but by the Son, no one goes to Christ except through his mother. Excuse me. According to Pope Leo, you see the footnote at the bottom of page 33? 
So co-redeemer, mediator to Christ, between you and Christ, this is Mary. Just what would you say to that? First Timothy two five. First Timothy two five. There, I'm quoting. There is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But then you've got, in addition, you've got Mary's perpetual virginity. She was a virgin at the time that Christ was conceived within her. That's true. She wasn't married to Joseph as yet. We know the story. She had had no children. She was the virgin Mary. But Roman Catholicism teaches she remained a virgin the rest of her life. She never had any other children. The perpetual virginity. And the thing about that is, I've got listed for you there, Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, the people to whom Jesus is teaching and among whom he's doing miracles are astonished. And they say, is this not the carpenter's son? Does he not come from Nazareth? Are these not his brothers and sisters? That's what it says. So they're going back to his hometown. They're saying, this is a hometown boy. We know this guy. And how's he doing all this? But Roman Catholicism has to explain away the brothers and sisters that are listed in the Bible. By name, by the way. A number of them by name. Including James, the Lord's brother. And they say they weren't really brothers. They were cousins. We've talked about the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption, middle of page 33, into heaven. In 1950, Pope Pius declared that Mary, quote, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. 1950. So it doesn't say Mary never died. It's a technicality. It doesn't say she never died, but it does say her body is no longer here. So that's an open question in Roman Catholicism as to whether Mary ever died. But if she did die, she wasn't in the grave very long. She was assumed into, into heaven. Mary was without sin, according to Roman Catholicism. Mary benefited first of all and uniquely from Christ's victory over sin. She was preserved from all stain of original sin and by a special grace of God committed no sin of any kind during her whole earthly life. All right, you all see what happens when you depart from the authority of the Bible? Do you see what happens? You now have the authority to promulgate all kinds of things. And that's what's happened with the veneration and really the worship of of Mary within Roman Catholicism. All right, if you'll go back to page 31 then. Once you have asked that question of your Roman Catholic friend, so tell me, what is the Immaculate Conception? Here's what my experience has been. A Roman Catholic person gets shaken a bit by that. Once you have that discussion, it's like, really? Uh, I didn't know that I had whole dogmas that I have to believe on pain of penalty of hell that aren't found anywhere in the Bible. I didn't know that. They're usually surprised to hear that. And that shakes them up a bit. And then that raises the question, well then, if you've been told that, what else have you been told? 
about how it is you have a relationship with God. Which is the next question on page 31. How do I have a relationship with God? Because the Roman Catholic Church believes the Bible is only one authority of equal weight with tradition and church teaching, it has strayed into false teaching of other doctrines. So quickly listing some of those on sin. Roman Catholicism has two kinds of sin. There's mortal sin and venial sin. The mortal sins are the ones that will damn you to hell. Venial sins are small stuff. So mortal sins and, and venial sins. Mortal sins are, you know, like I say, really the bigger stuff. And that includes murder. So let me just ask you then a, a question for you to think about. Think about. If someone is a, is it possible for someone who's a genuine Christian, they're born again, they have a relationship with Christ, is it possible for a person like that to get into such a, a difficult state that they take their own life? Is it possible that someone could do that? My answer to that is yes. Um, and what would happen in eternity to a person who committed suicide but who was a genuine Christian? Where would they go? They would go to heaven. If you're a genuine Christian, you go to heaven. right? If you're saved, if you're born again, you go to heaven. But here's the thing. Suicide is self-murder. And in Roman Catholicism, murder is a mortal sin. And Jesus didn't cover all of your mortal sins. We're going to see how it is you get your mortal sins covered. But it ain't by Jesus. So if in Roman Catholicism, if you commit suicide, the last thing you ever did in this life was commit a mortal sin. Do you see that? And because that's not covered by Jesus, it's not covered. Which means in Roman Catholicism, someone who commits suicide goes to hell. That's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's just an example of how this idea of mortal sins and the requirement that the church be involved in atoning for, seeing those sins atoned for, practically affects uh, someone. So that's the view of sin, venial sins, mortal sins. Middle of page 31 the view of grace in Roman Catholicism, grace is assistance God gives to help us earn his favor. All right, now read that slowly. <laughs> grace is God helping you earn his favor. Now, in the Bible, grace is unmerited favor, right? There's, that's why it's grace. But in Roman Catholicism, God gives grace so that you can do stuff. To then earn his favor. The grace given through baptism cannot be merited, but the grace he gives through the rest of life can be. Quote, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Justification. The 16th century Council of Trent that I've mentioned famously rejected salvation by faith alone. It said, quote, if anyone saith, that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification. Let him be anathema. Statement like that means that 
I, if you, if you believe what I believe, if you believe what this church teaches, if you, frankly, if you believe what the Bible says, then according to that, you're anathema, accursed, damned. And by the way, that still stands. The Roman Catholic Church has not abandoned this. The pronouncements of Trent are still official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. God gives righteousness over time as we participate in the sacraments and do good works, which brings you then to the sacraments. According to the Roman Catholic Church, one of the works we do to earn salvation is to participate in the seven sacraments. They are baptism, confirmation, communion, called the Eucharist, in which Mass takes place, penance, marriage, Holy orders, that would be ordination to the priesthood, and then last rites before someone dies. Performing these deeds, even if you are an infant being baptized, earn God's favor. According to the Roman Catholic Catechism, the sacraments act ex opera operato, literally, by the work worked, or by the very fact of the actions being performed. Thus, the sacraments give grace by the very fact that they're done, not dependent upon the recipient, but the recipient gets grace because the sacrament is done. Do you all see that? You did the thing. So this is why, then, people get in a mode, and you've got friends and family members who do this. I go to Mass every week. I do the thing. The thing is done. The thing does what the thing is supposed to do. And then I go... And then I come back and do it again. And it it's effective simply by virtue of you having participated in it. Middle of that paragraph, the Roman Catholic Church affirms that the sacraments are necessary for salvation. Baptism of an infant removes original sin and justifies the person as a child of God. Confirmation is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit where the person is now responsible for their faith. Confession enables the forgiving of mortal sin. Do you all see that? You confess. You have to confess to a priest a mortal sin. And this is why the suicide thing then, right? Because you have no opportunity to get that mortal sin taken care of. The Eucharist communion atones for sin and imparts the grace of Christ to the recipient. So this is the main thing that happens when you go to Mass. It's called Mass, right? And in the Mass, there every time you go to Mass, and if you've ever been to witness the Roman Catholic Mass, the priest holds the host and he prays, he consecrates the host. When he does that, according to Roman Catholic teaching, the substance of the bread turns into the body, the literal body of Jesus. And when he holds up the cup, the substance of the cup turns into the literal blood of Jesus. And in the mass, you have a re-sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is being re-sacrificed over and over and over and over. What would you say to that? You might go to a book in your New Testament called Hebrews. In Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 that say that Christ is a sacrifice that was given once for all. You might go to what Jesus said when he hung on the cross. And he said, it is what? It is finished. But see, in Roman Catholicism, it's never finished. The work of Christ is never finished. So then forgive. And then there's marriage. And then, of course, not everybody gets married. And so that 
Not all seven sacraments are participated in by everybody. Ordination, not everybody gets ordained. But then there's extreme unction or last rites. And you guys have seen that where the priest is rushing to the hospital to give last rites to, to someone. And in the case of someone who might have committed a mortal sin, last rites of a priest will cover that. For them, so they they need to hurry and get there if that's the if that's the case. Forgiveness: A Roman Catholic must confess to a priest, be truly sorry, and do penance. You can also do penance on behalf of another, and even on behalf of someone who has died, to work for their forgiveness. Purgatory. So this is where purgatory. You put all that together. This is why there's in Roman Catholicism something called purgatory. Because if you think about all that, all right, if that's all true, and you got all these venial sins, and you know, how do I get all that taken care of? And I got to work for it. And Jesus hasn't covered everything. When I die, I'm going to have stuff on my record. I mean, really, you are. I mean, that's. I don't care who you are. Any of us are going to die. You're going to have stuff on your record. So how does that stuff on your record get taken care of? Enter purgatory. Since you have to participate in earning your salvation, and most people aren't good enough to enter heaven when they die, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that people who aren't bad enough to enter hell go to an in-between place where they remain while those alive work to earn a way to heaven for them. Purgatory is, quote, a place or condition of temporal punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, are not entirely free from venial faults or have not fully paid the satisfaction due their transgressions. Purgatory is only necessary because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Jesus' death is not enough to cleanse you perfectly. All right, page 33, bottom. So how would you evangelize then a Roman Catholic friend? Well, you've got practicing Roman Catholics and you've got non-practicing Roman Catholics. And on the couple of pages that follow, I've got advice for each. For the practicing, believing Roman Catholic On page 34, try to bring that person back to the Bible. And, you know, point out to this person the Immaculate Conception and the fact that things you believe are not found in the Bible. And see if that, Lord willing, the Lord will use that, that will matter to them. And then you show them the centrality of the Bible and the sufficiency of Scripture to teach us. And that's what those bullet points on page 34 are about, to teach the Bible is sufficient for everything we need to teach us about life and godliness. And then down toward the bottom of page 34, on the issue of salvation, emphasize that the Roman Catholic Church often seems to combine your justification and your sanctification. The Bible indicates that human effort must be part of sanctification, but it plays no part in our justification. That is, we're saved, we come to God, and he does that work by his grace. We're dead in sin. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He causes us to embrace him and desire to live for him. And then indeed, we begin to live for him. That's called sanctification. We begin to grow in him. But that's not your salvation. Your salvation is found At the moment you come to Christ, believe in him, and he applies his work to you, and your sins are covered past, present, and future. And then, top of page 35, for a non-practicing Roman Catholic. These are the many who are unaware of the Roman Catholic Church's teachings. These Catholics treat Roman Catholicism like an identity more than a religion. It's a community to which they belong more than a faith that they must practice. 
And so they're tied to it. They're tied to it by heritage, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, still, I would recommend that you begin with where is your authority? If we're going to talk about how you can have a relationship with God, how are we going to know what that is? Point them back to the Bible. And again, I've always found the Immaculate Conception is a good place to start. Okay? All right. Time for us to end. Let's pray. Next week, we will look at uh, how to witness to a few other groups, uh, including just regular friends and family. Okay? Father, we thank you for this time and thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for Holy Scripture. Lord, we don't have to grope in darkness because we have the light of your word. Thank you for teaching us about yourself, about ourselves, about the Lord Jesus Christ and the only way to salvation. Lord, uh, help us to be people then who embrace that message and then give that message. Grant us wisdom and sensitivity as we do that, but help us to communicate truth. And may the truth of your word uh, be used in the lives of those that you've brought into our spheres of influence so that we can be used as your instruments to draw them to yourself. Help us to do that even this week. Open doors for that, we ask you. Grant us safety as we serve you. Bring us back together this Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.